We begin with the letter A. A is for... M is for murder. E is for... Danger! And, uh... Dodge. With... Monster. Help! Love me and be... Please! Help! Yeah. Welcome back to the Is For Podcast. Tonight, we are Sargeless. I am Danger. And I am Monster. And I am in love with the term Sargeless. Yes. Yeah, we like having him here, but, you know, miss him when he's gone. But I am going to just, use, I'm going yes. to use Sargeless from here on yeah, out. Just, anytime just to clarify, us. just to clarify, I don't love when he's not here. I just love the terminology. Yes, yes, yes. Fair enough. But when he's not here, I'm going to classify it as a Sargeless episode. So I like that. Yeah. Tonight on the Is4 podcast, we're going to be discussing the letter Q. And because we have trouble coming up with things for the letter Q in our world of uh, books, video games, movies, and whatnot, we are going to be talking Quentin Tarantino, part two. That's right. This is our first ever part two, our first sequel, if you will. Yes. It's uh, probably going to have a part three, depending on how how his career goes and how our career goes. <laughs> so, and possibly a part four. Possibly. So Kill Bill is, uh, you know, part one and two. It was, you know, made as one, as we will talk more about. So it is kind of, you know, is it one or two movies? But then we're going to talk Grindhouse Death Proof after that, which Monster is wearing a Death Proof shirt. Those, those of you can't see him because this is an auditory medium. I was going to say that the one thing that you guys are really missing out on by not being able to visually see anything is usually I wear a shirt that goes along with whatever episode we're talking about. And I do have a death proof shirt on. So uh, needless to say, that is that is one of my all time favorite Tarantino. Films. I'm going to hang out here in my black and gray baseball T-shirt and uh, yeah. Well, well, a black and gray baseball was is another one of my favorite Tarantino films. So you're you're good. Okay, cool. Uh, sure. I, di- I didn't see that one. Let me know how I could get a hold of it. Oh, it's pretty popular. I think you missed the train on that one. Yeah, I did. Tarantino. <laughs> uh, you mean Quentin? Yes, Quentin. Yes, we're gonna go. We're gonna call him Quentin, like we're old friends, as much as possible. So Quentin, I uh, thought of Kill Bill as an homage to the Grindhouse cinema movies, and Grindhouse was not a bad, you know section of movies a bad genre of movies by any means it was just you know cheaper made and a little bit grittier and and a lot of times people get hung up on the fact that grindhouse equates to horror films but really grindhouse was just 60s 70s and 80s cheaply made exploitation films a lot of times they were horror but a lot of times they were um car films, action films, black exploitation films, sex exploitation films. There's several different genres under the heading of Grindhouse. Which I really feel like the first time that he did a black exploitation film was Jackie Brown, which he only wrote the screenplay for. It was based off of a book. He did direct it, of course. But, you know, it wasn't quite his, but we did see a big turn with Kill Bill, of course. You can kind of feel that when you watch these films kind of chronologically, I think. Reservoir Dogs, he's, he's, there's a lot of his, um, touches on there, but he's obviously a brand new filmmaker and he's trying new things. And then Pulp Fiction is, I mean, come on, it's kind of a classic. But then Jackie Brown is uh, kind of more in the Reservoir Dogs 
where he's still trying to kind of figure things out. But I think Kill Bill, specifically volume one, is where you see a lot of his tropes really come to fruition. Things that you will see later on in Django and Inglorious Bastards and even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a little bit kind of got their origins from Kill Bill. Yep. So the types of movies that he kind of smashed together for this was the uh, martial arts, samurai, black exploitation, and spaghetti westerns, which, Monster, do you know exactly what a spaghetti western was and actually why it was classified as a spaghetti western? Uh, well, I know part of it has to do with kind of the, um, the soundtrack of it, having kind of the twangy guitars and stuff. The actual term spaghetti uh, is that is that a like a hyper violence kind of no? Part so of it? the twangy soundtrack is just a quality that was within the movies, but the spaghetti okay. western term was actually you know came about because western movies that were made in the sixties, largely directed by Italian men in Europe. Okay, okay, it's kind of kind of a racist term, but you know, and he I put, honestly, he, in I, a spaghetti I, I, western, he pulls out his ravioli revolver and yeah. <laughs> ravioli revolver. Yeah. If I ever start another band, <laughs> that might be the name. Please start one just to use that name. Oh, so, man. I might have to. Yeah. Spaghetti Westerns were Western movies made by Italians, and they kind of all had a certain look, you know, that kind of led to that grindhouse, that, you know, that that look, that cheap look that was good. I was actually just kind of thinking, like, how I, I never knew that about Spaghetti Westerns. Like, I've... I've heard the term a million times. I've used the term a million times and I never knew where the origin of it came from. I just knew that's what you called it. Yeah. I watched a lot of them with my dad when I was a kid. And so I knew that from that point, because you know, those were some of his favorite movies. And and that's, and I'll be honest with you as much uh, cinema as I've seen as, as much of a like movie buff as I claim to be Westerns are a little bit of a blank spot in my repertoire that is not a genre that i'm very familiar with other than django unchained which is possibly my favorite (laughs) yeah and i would even classify the hateful eight as a western oh sure sure absolutely but yeah the western it's just not a popular thing for people of our generation yeah you know i know there was like bone tomahawk you know that was a western great movie absolutely you know, there's not a lot of Westerns that nah, really come out nah. anymore. Not like there was in the 60s by any means. So anyway, back to Kill Bill. So, all right, let's do a quick rundown of the uh, the story. So uh, the story is told in chapters, which is one of Tarantino – or sorry, Quentin's um, signature things. And he, and he uses yep. that to, you know, tell um, nonlinear storytelling and whatnot. And it centers around the bride a retired assassin um, who wants to live a normal life, you know, go on. She's gotten, you know, pregnant, but you know, we learn very quickly in the movie it's bills. And, uh, and she is played by Uma Thurman, who is kind of a, um, I, I don't want to say a Quentin Tarantino staple. Cause she's really only been in two, three movies, depending on how you want to classify kill bill. Well with that. So Michael Madsen was one of his, one of his yes. actors, but he was in, Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs, Dogs and then Kill Bill Two. <laughs> he wasn't. Yeah, in and then he he came back in Hateful Eight. Yeah. Um. So he's one of we, his actors that he doesn't really use. So you know, I feel you know, like if you use one more than once, you can classify them as one of their actors. 
know, yeah, and I like I like Madsen quite a bit. He does a lot of really low budget schlock. Yeah, um, a lot. But I think Tarantino captures him better than most directors do. Yeah, I'll agree. Because I, I don't think he's necessarily a tier, you know, uh, but he always gives a solid performance. But I think he's kind of one note. Like Michael Madsen is Michael Madsen, and that's the character that you're going to get. And Tarantino plays into that and doesn't try to make him be anything that he's not. Right. Madsen is one of those that will always be a background actor, never the leading man, which sounds yeah. like an emo band song. So that'll be the first uh, single by um, Ravioli Revolver. Ravioli Revolver. I couldn't remember which which word went first. <laughs> oh well, you got to if you're gonna name your band. All right. So her crew, the Deadly Viper, Viper Assassination Squad, are divas. Uh, they don't like it. And during the bride's wedding rehearsal, which I don't feel like she would be referred to as the bride before a wedding rehearsal, at least. So they crash church, kill everybody in the wedding party, then beat the bride spaghetti Western style, which is really something you saw in the spaghetti Westerns that you really didn't see before or really exist outside of it. So um, until she can't move. And then once the divas are done, Bill walks up to the bride and puts a bullet in her head right after she tells him that she is pregnant with his child. Uh, four years later, the bride wakes up in a coma or from a coma um, and vows revenge on the divas, saving Bill for last. Do you remember what she had in her head when she woke up? She had a big metal thing, I guess, from where the bullet That's right. Went, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for those of you who don't know, which you probably do, Bill is David Carradine. In Kill Bill Volume 1, you actually never see him. You just hear his voice. Well, you do see um, his hand on, on a true. sword. That's it. True. That's right. You're right. Um, but you hear his kind of iconic voice kind of do a voiceover right there at the very beginning when you see Uma Thurman's bloodied up face, which, to tie it back to my nonsense, his father, John Carradine, is a little bit of a staple in the old monster pictures. Yes. He's played Dracula and a few other kind of iconic characters, but I digress. I apologize. It's okay. I had to throw it out there. You just went a little monster on us, and, and that, that's fine. All right, so Tarantino started working on this, started coming up with the idea for it when he was doing um, Pulp Fiction with uh, Uma. Uma? Am I going to call her Uma Thermos? So. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I really like the term Uma Thermos. Uh, that is um, Uma Thermos. Yeah, so. what a good image. Yeah. So connections between her character Mia and the bride. So uh, when the bride is talking to Vernita, she says that would be about square and draws square with her finger. And you can't see audience that I just drew a square. So all right. Um, and, and just to just to make it clear, what what Danger is referring to is Mia Wallace from Pulp Fiction. And Pulp Fiction, Mia Wallace uh, says, "Don't be a," and draws a square with her finger. Yeah. So, but so also in Pulp Fiction, Mia Wallace, who is played also by Uma Thurman, uh, talks about doing a uh, TV pilot called uh, Fox Force 5, right. where she talks about being one of five deadly female assassins. I believe she calls them the, uh, uh, I believe she says Viper Assassination Squad in Pulp Fiction, but 
I'll have to go back and watch. I don't remember. I, I know that I know it's called the show is called Fox Sports Five, and yes. I'm not sure if they mentioned serpents or divas, okay. but they might. But you know, so even back then, you know, ten years earlier, this I, the seed of an idea was already in Tarantino and Uma Thurman's brains. Right. Absolutely. It was something that was, you know, kind of building, and Tarantino, you know, was building his world you know, his, his little, his little, little universe, you know, um, Quentin verse, the shared, the, the Quentin verse, yeah. the shared, the shared, uh, Quentin Tarantino universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, then at the beginning of chapter five, there's a shot of the bride walking through an airport, passing an advertisement for red apple cigarettes, the same brand that her character, uh, that Miss Thermos's, uh, character Mia <laughs> <laughs> smoked in Pulp Fiction. Uh, the brand is also used in other Tarantino movies, um, mm-hmm. including From Dust Till Dawn. Yep. Which I don't remember them in From Dust Till Dawn, but I'm pretty sure that everybody in the vampire bar was smoking and stuff. So, I- yeah, uh, I don't remember them specifically from From Dust Till Dawn. I do remember. I'm pretty sure it's Jackie Brown, where they're in the airport and there's a big advertisement for them on the side of the wall. But yeah, they pop up in in several of his films. I don't know. I kind of want to go through and watch and like take note of any movie that they pop up in. So, but then like yeah, once Quint- that pops up, I'm done with the movie and just go on to the next yeah. one. And and that's the cool thing about directors and filmmakers is there's always sort of like tropes that you can pick on that are very specific per said director. Um, you know, like whether it's a brand or a particular actor or a particular saying. Or the fact that you have to do close-ups of females' feet in every single one of your films. You know, that sort of thing. Real normal stuff. Yeah, I'm on board except for the foot thing, you know. <laughs> I, I like a woman with good feet, but that, yeah. No, and I think that's actually something that a lot of other directors kind of miss is they don't do that kind of stuff. And I feel like yeah. that kind of stuff is fun for directors to do where they, you know, put little nuggets of things from different movies and kind of connect the world. I like watching a film regardless of genre, regardless of, you know, what even the main point of the movie is, but being able to recognize that director's stamp on it. Um, Not to get way off topic, but like Sam Raimi, I mean, he's a perfect example Mm -hmm. where whether he's doing a comedy or a kid's film or a horror movie He's going to stick his schlocky Oldsmobile in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. There's going to be some weird Bruce Campbell-esque shenanigans going on because it's just his style. You know, Quentin Tarantino is right there. I mean, every one of his films, whether it's a a Western, whether it's a samurai film, whether it's a crime drama, they're going to have his touches. Absolutely. So let's run through Kill Bill one and two, just a quick description and uh, talk about the money for just a bit. Um, so, of course, they both star Miss Thermos um, as the bride, and I'm calling her. I'm calling her Miss Thermos from here on out. Uh, yeah, I was like, are you doing that on purpose, or, time, or do I have to correct you? That time, I absolutely did not, but it's stuck in my <laughs> head now. So that's where we are. So, swears revenge on Team of Assassins, played by Lucy Liu, Michael Madsen, Daryl Hannah, and Vivica A. Fox, and their leader Bill played by the late, great David Carradine. Now, something I found out today, and if I'm stealing thunder, stop me before I get started. Apparently, Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah 
really disliked each other. Didn't and yeah, and apparently the the stories are that they hated each other so much that even like when they went to the premiere, they couldn't be anywhere near each other. Like they just couldn't stand each other. And so I feel like, especially in volume two, where they they actually end up meeting and, and kind of have a fight sequence. They yeah, kind of um, have one. They do. And well, she, yeah, takes yeah. But that chemistry is is kind of accurate because they apparently did not care for one another. I'm sure they didn't mind kind of beating up on each other a bit. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to learn they didn't pull punches at all and and actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uma Thurman actually literally ripped her eyeball out. It was, well, it was a whole to do. I was just talking about actually punching her. I wasn't talking about like, <laughs> you know, blinding the lady. Fully. I mean, if she were to actually blind her, she couldn't watch, you know, Daryl Hannah couldn't watch her best movie that was made in the 80s, Splash. It was such a terrible movie. I'm not it a was. fan of Daryl Hannah either. I'm not a big fan of Tom Hanks. I That's like, right. I said it. I like Tom Hanks, but I don't like Tom Hanks in everything. All I know is that after, you know, where he was in Castaway, Sully, I, I, I'm not traveling with Tom Hanks ever because all of the movies where he travels, they just, they go awry. So anyway, she takes a trip to Tokyo where she battles the Yakuza. It was Tarantino's, or sorry, Quentin, Quentin's. <laughs> um, our, our old pal, Quentin. Yes, our old pal, Quentin. What's his middle name? Gerald? Jerome. Jerome. Okay. Jerome. Uh, Quentin Jerome. QG. For short, as we called him on the block as kids. J. No. QG. Um, no, no, it's it's J. Quint oh. Jerome Tarantino. Oh, okay. It begins with a J. <laughs> Never met the man. All right. So Do you want do you want to know what Uma Thurman's middle name is? Sure, why not? Karuna. That doesn't make it any better. Miss Thermos it is. <laughs> so um, Uma Karuna Thurman. I like it. It just rolls off the tongue. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, featured anime sequence produced by uh, Production IG. It was the first of the two Kill Bill films. Volume 2 was released the following year. Volume 1 grossed $180 million on a $30 million budget. Kill Bill 2 came out following year because the two were filmed together. And mm -hmm. uh, just the absurd runtime. And, and that was Quentin Tarantino's original vision. He wanted to release a four, four and a half hour long epic samurai revenge film. And between the producers and the distribution companies and also the movie theaters in general, uh, they said no way yep. because it's too long. And if you split it in half, that's double the amount of ticket sales. That's double the revenue streams. And also, from a creative standpoint, Quentin Tarantino decided, well, if I want to make it one long film, I'm going to have to cut all these things out and not really bring my full vision to fruition. So he compromised and said, okay, I'll split it in half, and that way he got to keep the majority of what he wanted to put in there. Volume 2, The Bride is still on her journey, her campaign of revenge. Um, against the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, or Diva, Divas for short. Volume 2, again, produced together on $30 million, $152 million, $152.2. Part of the reason I think that it had a little bit of a smaller return than, than Volume 1, and, and, and again, part of the reason that I 
personally didn't love volume two as much is there's a big tonal shift. Absolutely. Um, Volume one is a action packed revenge film. There are scenes of just gratuitous violence and it's way over the top. And it's, there are those like slower Tarantino dialogue moments, but it is an action samurai film. Volume two is a lot slower. It's more emotional. Yes, it's very emotional. And I wanted to go back and revisit it. It's been a while since I've seen it. I did watch some clips and and read up on it a little bit. But I I think that it was just such a tonal shift that, especially at that time, because when did the first one come out? Oh, three. Oh, three. And then volume two was oh, four. So I would have been 17 and 18. Yeah. 17 and 18-year-old me loved films like Kill Bill Volume 1 and was not patient enough or smart enough for films like Volume 2. That's just where I was. Now, I I went and saw both of them in theaters. You know, I I loved both of them. And I, you know, I liked the tonal shift because I wasn't into the all-out action bloody movies. No, I mean, I loved Mm -hmm. them. I I got into them, but I did like, you know, that other part of things as well. So I, I... so I don't think I saw either one of them in theaters. I, I remember watching them both at home pretty much as soon as they were available to rent. Cause that's what you used to do back in the day. Right. Um, and I watched them with my parents and I, I kind of remember thinking I loved Kill Bill one, like absolutely loved it. And Kill Bill two, I think I was expecting Kill Bill one and it's a totally different experience. And so it left me a little bit meh. Since then, especially now that I'm older and I like slower films and I like more subtle films, from what I've seen, I I, I need to revisit it. I think I'm going to love it. It's just I haven't had a chance to yet. I do remember going to see, you know, when I went to go see the first one and she's in the middle of the big fight sequence with the, what is it, the Crazy 88? Yeah. And there's the one guy that gets his arm cut off and it's, yes. like, it's like a showerhead sprayer of blood coming out. <laughs> And I was friends with a bit of a movie snob at that point. Uh And he walked out. He walked out of the theater. He (laughs) left. And I was like, screw you. I'm staying. This is great. So so here's a little bit of trivia that I learned the other day that I find really interesting. So back in the day, when they used to show old samurai films on TV, like on cable, because of the graphic nature and the violence – a lot of times they would show these films in black and white. Even if they were filmed in color, they would show them in black and white to kind of downplay the the blood and the gore a little bit. Right. In Kill Bill Volume 1, when Beatrix Kiddo, Uma Thurman's character, the bride, uh, starts her – Miss Thermos. She keeps hot things hot and cold things cold. <laughs> During the, the battle – uh, with the Crazy 88, when it first starts, there is it, it's in black and white for a little bit. Tarantino did this for two reasons. The first being to pay homage mm-hmm. to the old samurai films. Second reason was for the actual same reason that they used to do it back on cable TV. The censors were like, hey, this is out of control. You yeah. have people's arms flying off. You have blood squirting like geysers. This is ridiculous. And so he was like, all right, well, I'll put part of it in black and white. And they were like, all right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so it kind of worked out in his in his favor, I think. All right. 
another little piece of trivia from the Kill Bill movies. Did you know that Miss Thermos was in a car accident? And no, she didn't spill her soup. She got to a car accident. So I want to read through a few things that I found. Okay. And you tell me who was at fault. I already know who I think is at fault, but go ahead. All right. Well, reserve your... I will. I will. I will. Yeah. So Quentin insisted she perform her own driving stunts. He says he did not force her, Quentin, Quentin Jerome, says he did not force her to do the stunt. And then Ms. Thermos says the incident was negligent to the point of criminality, but she did not believe Quentin had malicious intent. Next thing, the road the production was using was not as smooth or straight as Quentin promised it would be. And Ms. Thermos said the driver's seat was not screwed down properly. Thermos lost control. I'm having a hard time <laughs> taking this seriously. <laughs> all right, all right. So I'll, I'll, I'll read her name. So Thurman lost control of the wheel, and the car ended up crashing. The actress sustained injuries to her neck and knees. She's a tall lady, so those knees, as a tall man, your knees take mm -hmm, damage. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Sure, sure. In a New York Times interview, Thurman says that she almost died while making Kill Bill after Quentin persuaded her to drive a stunt car against her wishes, a process she describes as dehumanization to the point of death. And the last nugget, coordinator Keith Adams told The Hollywood Reporter that he and his entire department were kept off set for the day. Thurman was allegedly persuaded by the director to drive a rat trap convertible down a curved and sandy Mexican road at 40 miles an hour. So, who do you think was responsible? As much as I like him and respect him, it is Quentin Tarantino. All right. Here's the thing. As much of a visionary as he is, there are several reports that you can go back and look at of Quentin basically being so ramped up in his vision that he basically is willing to do whatever it takes to get the shot that he wants. Right. The way I understand this story is that he wanted the image of Uma Thurman's hair blowing in the wind as she drove this old school car around these windy roads. A stunt person wasn't available or the stunt people weren't on set that day. I'm not exactly sure. So I also think that he was at fault because the stunt people wouldn't just take the day off unless they were told to. Right. So right. he was so set on Uma Thurman's face with her hair flowing back in his brain. He had this shot in his head where he said, we're going to do it. And I can't, I, hindsight 2020, you know, it'd be like, well, you just say no, but in the heat of the moment, plus, you know, Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino worked on this film together very closely for a long time. They trusted one another. They fed off each other's energy. And so I think Uma Thurman felt a lot of pressure to, I don't want to say impress Quentin Tarantino, but wanted to, to give into his vision and put herself in a, in a reckless situation that had he not kind of pressured her into it, I, I think she would have she would have walked away from it. Yeah, probably. So, all right, we agree that uh, Quentin, if you haven't watched an interview with him, Quentin can be a douchebag. So. 
Yeah, um, no, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so I just want to run through a quick little bit of the things that Quentin likes to put into his movies and things that really showed up in here. So uh, the first one, A Fistful of Dollars, which was one of the spaghetti westerns, the yeah. score is heard after Bud has shot the bride. So the first time, you know, the uh, I think it was the buckshot, you know, or um, and so then also Fistful was one of the three films shown to Uma uh, to prepare for the role as the bride. And then hopping down to 1977, Woody Allen, Annie Hall. Um, in the flashback where we see the adult bride sitting in a classroom, um, it's like her childhood memory. Woody Allen does the same thing in the first scene of Annie Hall. Hmm. Then in Fist of Fury in 1972, in the fight with the crazy idiot, the bride spins around on the floor, slashing legs as Bruce Lee did, and Fist of Fury with nunchucks. So... I mean, there's there's a lot more references to things that that he pulled. Um, like for instance, in Grease from '78, uh, the pussy wagon takes its name from the greased lightning lyric "She's a real pussy wagon," which so, I, I didn't know that. But uh, what I also found pretty funny was that apparently when they show the Kill Bill movies on cable TV, right. they have to censor it. And instead of pussy wagon, it says party wagon. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I do remember that. I remember looking and at it going, that, that looks pretty good. They did a good job yeah. at editing it. Yeah. So. And uh, Quentin Tarantino has leased or let borrow or whatever that truck a couple of times for a couple music videos. One for a uh, Missy Elliott video and then one for Telephone by Lady Gaga and Beyonce. Huh. So Star Trek II, <laughs> Wrath of Khan, and 82, um, the old Klingon proverb quoted at the beginning of Volume 1 is a quote from the film. And then in Star Trek, the original series, the bride describes Sophie Fatale as being uh, dressed like a villain from Star Trek, specifically from, mm. you know, the first series. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, he goes on to uh, to reference so many so many yeah I, and oh gosh i can't remember his name now off the top of my head but the martial artist who trains uma thurman in volume two his name is a direct lift from one of these old kung fu movies from like the 70s i didn't come across and, that yeah and the actor who plays him actually played in a lot of those old Kung Fu movies from like the seventies and eighties, which, um, which David Carradine was a major yes. Kung Fu actor himself. So yeah, the, the show Kung Fu, which was really right. popular for a long time. Yeah. Star David Carradine, which actually, so, you know, the, uh, the kaleidoscope, our feature presentation that he puts at the beginning of a lot of his movies. Yes. It's yes. directly ripped from, you know, that was shown movies throughout the uh, beginning of movies throughout the seventies. So, yep. That's a kind of a, uh, a grindhouse staple. Mm -hmm. All right. So we are going to round up Kill Bill. So he actually planned to work on Inglorious Bastards as it was previously titled, but postponed this to, uh, to direct Kill Bill. He started working on Kill Bill. You know, it was like, it was just gaining too much steam with him and, and Uma. And so he went ahead and skipped doing Glorious Bastards for a couple movies, but he, uh, 
you know, came back around to it, of course, as we both know. So also during the production of one and two, uh, he originally believed that he would do two more Kill Bill films, tentatively believing that they would be once every 10 years. So I wonder if those are the next ones that we're going to, if the next one we're going to see is a Kill Bill volume three. No idea yeah. what he's planning. Yeah, he had mentioned that possibly uh, Volume 3 would involve Vivica A. Fox's daughter from the first scene, well, kind of near the beginning of Kill Bill Volume 1. I can't remember her name now, but basically her seeking revenge on Uma Thurman's character for killing her mother. That was the most recent thing he kind of said in passing, but I don't think he has any definitive plans on that. So it was going to be that, and then another one of the storylines in it is going to be uh, the daughter actually coming after the mom for killing her dad. So she would have got okay, all of Bill's okay. money and come after her dad or her mom for that. So in 2019, Quentin and Uma, I'm just going to go first name with all of them from sure. here. Sure. So Quentin, close. Quentin and Uma, you know, uh, they live next door, you know. Yeah. Um, so they've talked about it in 2019 and she only said that tarantino has written something that's really all she gave and and so just to piggyback off our conversation earlier about the the car wreck for the scene in 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 the film uh uma thurman has forgiven quentin tarantino they are like buddy buddy again there was a couple years there where uma thurman really didn't want anything to do with quentin tarantino but they are back to to you know at least Cordially, like professionally. So in June of 2021, so June of last year, Quentin's state of the film would take place 20 years after the original films when Beatrix Kiddo and her daughter Bibi are forced to go on the run. Um, he found the idea of casting Uma and her daughter, Maya Hawk. Is it Maya or Mia? Maya Hawk. So in the two leading roles, after working with her on with Hawk on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah. Later that month, Tarantino stated that the sequels had not yet come to fruition due to a reluctance to take on more Kill Bill films following the fatigue he endured in making the first two volumes. Now you can probably tell from her name, but you know who Mia Hawk is, right? Hmm. Yeah. Um. Ethan. Hawks. Okay. Yeah. So Ethan Hawk and Uma Thurman's yeah. daughter. Um, sorry. So then a little nugget stuck in. Do you know what he did after Kill Bill, but before Death Proof? This is when he wrote, is this when he wrote True Romance? No, he wrote True Romance. That was before. before. Yeah. That was a long time um, before. True Romance came out in the nineties, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was stupid. No, that so was stupid. between Kill Bill and Death Proof is when he got his little guest director spot on Sin City. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so do you know the scene that he directed? Uh it was it was with uh, Elijah Wood's character, right? It was um when Clive Owen's character was driving um Benelcio del Toro, I don't, yeah. Um Oh yeah. Uh, character and his neck was cut and his head was going back and forth and he would breathe different talk differently how he was breathing and stuff. He directed <sighs> that scene, which there are Tons of similarities between Tarantino and Rodriguez filmmaking, but oh yeah, you know the, I believe their offices are across the hall from each other. And, at least it was at Miramax, which I don't really know. Right after the whole the whole thing, 
And speaking of Rodriguez and Tarantino, you get 2007's Grindhouse. <laughs> yep, which we are heading into. Thanks yes. for it, That wasn't still my thunder. That was still my segue. <laughs> hey, I, I saw an opportunity and I took it. <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. All right. Let's run through Death Proof for those who haven't seen it. If you haven't seen okay. it, you are missing out. Okay. Do you want to real quick? Do you want to do the rundown? Well, I just I just want to share my experience real quick. When I heard that Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino were going to do a double feature in honor of kind of the Grindhouse cinema, I was so excited. Me and my brother went and saw this in theaters, and it was such a cool experience. It started with what was then at the time was a fake trailer for a fake film called Machete, which eventually became its own film uh-huh. uh, and got a sequel. And then they showed Robert Rodriguez's directed film, Planet Terror, which had Bruce Willis and a couple other people in it. And it was kind of a sleazy zombie comedy kind of thing. Uh-huh. And then there was a few more fake trailers in between the two. And then was Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof where Rodriguez did like an over-the-top, gory action zombie film, Tarantino took it to more of that car chase, banishing point, like Steve McQueen era, like car chase kind of films. And still, like we said before, when you hear the term grindhouse, you assume possibly horror film, but this was more of the like old hot rod films mixed with a slasher horror element to it absolutely loved both of them i was in hog heaven me and my brother were laughing and sitting on the edge of our seats and just one of the best movie going experiences i've ever had yeah all right so to run through in 2007 he puts out a horror film so he actually classifies it as a horror film and i guess you have to i i would i would say you'd have to if you're gonna put it in a box so uh, right. Kurt Russell plays a stuntman who murders young women with a modified car that he purports to be death proof. Stars Rosario Dawson, Vanessa Ferlito, Jordan Ladd, Rose McGowan, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Zoe Bell. Pretty Even stacks. Eli Roth is in there for a minute. <laughs> ah, yeah. Uh, so the film was originally released theatrically as part of the Grindhouse double feature paired with, you know, uh, Planet Terror. Mm-hmm from which Michael Parks and Marley Shelton reprised their roles. Uh-huh. So carried over between the two, of course. So after Grindhouse underperformed at the box office, a domestic box office, Death Proof was released as a standalone feature in other countries and on home media. It received mostly positive reviews for its stunt sequences and tribute to exploitation cinema, although its pacing was criticized. So I I think the concept of doing a double feature grindhouse exploitation style film was a really cool idea, but I don't think in 2007 the average cinema goer got it. Like they didn't quite grasp what they were trying to do. I think both of these films are great mm-hmm. and as standalone films they would have done just fine, but I don't think enough people really got what they were trying to do. And I feel like it might work better, like in today's climate. Like I think that there's a better understanding of exploitation films, especially with the internet. You know, 
2007, yeah, we had the internet, but like there's so many streaming services now where these exploitation underground cult classics are easily attainable. But back then, they were a little harder to come by. And so I don't think people really understood exactly what Rodriguez and Tarantino were paying homage to. So you have to ask yourself two questions. Did this help people get to the point where they were curious about the underground kind of cult classic movies? And two, would it do better now because people are streaming things a lot more and sitting in a theater through two feature length movies and, you know, trailers would have just been too much. And that was part of what turned them off from going. So for me and my brother who went and had an absolute blast because we we got it. We were in on the joke, so we we loved every second of it. But yeah, for the average moviegoer that didn't quite get it, I could see this being a slog to sit through because you would have literally we were in the theater for I mean over three hours, mm-hmm. and again for us that was totally cool because every moment of those three hours plus were like filled with things we liked, but. You know, I was talking to a buddy of mine today, a a fellow musician, and we were talking about how the attention spans has kind of dwindled here recently over the past few years. And, you know, record labels don't want you to put out albums anymore. They want you to put out singles and EPs. They would rather you release a single every couple weeks than release an album. Like, that's not a thing anymore. Um, The single is definitely coming back, but that harkens back to the day of the... uh the 45. Yeah. But, but so that way they, you release one song at a time. It does its cycle gets lost to the ethos. And then the next song comes out and it's like, you know, I think going to the theaters for a three to four hour experience is not something people want to do. Remember back in the fifties, sixties and seventies, that was what you did. It was always a double feature. It was always a 20 minute short cartoon before your two hour long film. Like that was normal. But now, yeah, your movie needs to be like 70 to 80 minutes. If it goes to two hours, you're going to start losing people. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, depending on really the, um, the build up to it and whatnot. And for instance, I'm going to take the Marvel movies. I mean, all those Marvel movies were true. You know, they slowly got longer and longer. And then you had Endgame that had an app you could download to tell you what parts you could go pee during. You know, true, true. And I sat through the entire thing several times, actually. I was wanting to like it more than I did. And and to their credit, Rodriguez and Tarantino, both when they when they did the Grindhouse double feature thing, they did trim their movies up to fit better. Quentin Tarantino's theatrical version of Death Proof versus the DVD like standalone version are very different because the standalone version feels much more like a Tarantino film. There's a lot of dialogue segments and kind of character building like he likes to do. Whereas in the theatrical version, it's a little more, all right, let's get to the the gory car parts, which again, there still is a lot of dialogue, but it, it just moves a little quicker because again, a 75, 80 minute long grindhouse car movie is what he was releasing to theaters. So the story of Death Proof, Tarantino developed uh, because of his fascination of how stuntmen would, quote-unquote, death-proof their stunt cars so the drivers could survive these horrific accidents. 
Do you know where the name of the film came from? Please enlighten me. Okay. So originally the name of the film was going to be Thunderbolt. And as part of the like, you know, fake pretending to be an old grimy film print, if you look real carefully at the very beginning before the title card of Death Proof pops up, it says Thunderbolt real quick. And then right. yeah. I did notice that actually. I just kind of thought it was just a Tarantino thing. Yeah. So apparently him and Sean Penn were hanging out and they were both blitzed out of their minds. And Quentin Tarantino was talking about this film idea that he had called Thunderbolt, about these cars, blah, blah, blah. And Sean Penn said something about, oh, yeah, that'd be really cool. You know, back in the day, they could, stuntmen could death proof their car. And Tarantino's like, they did what now? He said, yeah, they would death proof their car. And he's like, that's the coolest shit I've ever heard. Yeah. And he changed the name of the movie to Death Proof immediately. <laughs> so, all right. He said he wanted to make a slasher film. You know, that's kind of what he wanted to tack on to. Yeah. To uh, Rodriguez's Planet Terror. So he said, I realized I couldn't do a straight slasher film because with the exception of women in prison films, there's no other genre quite as rigid. If you break that up, you really aren't doing it anymore. It's inorganic. So I realized, and I can't help but to, if you ever listen to an interview with him, he says, okay, a lot. And so I hear that in my head all the time. So anyway, it's inorganic. So I realized, let me take the structure of a slasher film and just do what I want. My version is going to be so fucked up and disjointed, but it seemingly uses a structure of a slasher film, hopefully against you. I like the fact that he wanted to make a movie that you're watching the movie and it's working against you the whole time. And really any predictions that you would come up with, I guess. Essentially what he did was he made... Kurt Russell's character, Stuntman Mike, Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. And instead of a giant machete knife or chainsaw, he had, he gave him a, a, a hot rod car. Yep, exactly. So Tarantino's whole deal with CGI. So CGI for car stunts doesn't make any sense to me. And this is, of course, him talking, not me. Mm-hmm. How is that supposed to be impressive? I don't think there have been any good car chase scenes since I started making films in 92. To me, the last terrific car chase was in Terminator 2, and Final Destination 2 had a magnificent car action piece. In between that, not a lot. It's bold words. So, every time a stunt happens, there's 12 cameras, and they use every angle for avid editing, and don't feel it in my stomach. It's just action. So, when me and my brother went to see these two films together, and again, to to a younger audience that may not even grasp of what we're talking about here when we went and saw these two movies together planet terror is a wide ass open roller coaster oh, God. there is blood flying everywhere it is non-stop so when death proof starts it basically the first 20 30 minutes take place in this bar where stuntman mike's talking to these girls and stuff and it's it's kind of slow paced and then you hit a couple of little sequences here or there and so we're kind of like okay this is all right, I guess. Like you're, you're sort of like the first movie was such an high octane experience. Right. You're like, what's going on here? And then it the turns. last 15, 20 minutes of death proof is some of the most exciting car chase stuff I have ever seen in my life. They play this game called ship's mass mm-hmm. where Zoe bell Back to Kill Bill, she was Uma Thurman's stunt double in Kill Bill. Yep. Incredible actress from New Zealand 
started off as a stunt double, but has also done like just acting roles as well. Right. Um, she's basically tied to the hood of this hot rod and stuntman Mike starts chasing them. And when I tell you, like I'm getting goosebumps right now, just picturing it in my mind. If you haven't seen it, it is unbelievable. And to Tarantino's point, there's not 12 cameras. There's not a bunch of computers. It's a girl tied to the hood of a car. Now, obviously they are doing, cinematic tricks to make it look a little more uh death defying than it really is but it's really happening and it is it is a pure excitement it really is so death proof was tarantino's first credit as a cinematographer every movie since he's had a credit as cinematographer mm-hmm. so in kurt russell's role they attempted to cast or quentin attempted to cast John Travolta, Willem Dafoe, John Malkovich, Mickey Rourke, Ron Perlman, Bruce Willis, Cal Penn, Sylvester Stallone. He went through all of those people before he settled on Kurt Russell. Well, hold on. Kurt Russell was one of his first choices for Bill from Kill Bill. When people talk about Tarantino's films and they talk about what an impressive filmmaker he is, I feel like Death Proof kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It's almost not seen as a true Tarantino film or it's most people put it near the bottom of the list. And I don't think it gets the respect it truly deserves. I think it's a much better film than people give it credit for. Absolutely. So Tarantino revealed that he cast Kurt Russell as stunt driver Mike uh, because, and he says for people of my generation, he's a true hero, but now there's a whole audience out there that doesn't know what Kurt Russell can do. When I open a newspaper and see an ad that says Kurt Russell in Dreamer or Kurt Russell in Miracle, I'm not disparaging these movies because I'm thinking, when is Kurt Russell going to be badass again? He's he's in my top ten. I absolutely love Kurt Russell. I But again, like Tarantino was saying, I'm talking about films like Big Trouble in Little China, yeah. The Thing, like that era Kurt Russell. Oh, yeah. You mentioned Eli Roth shows up for a quick minute. So he actually <laughs> flew in from Europe. He stopped filming Hostel Part 2 to film his scenes, which took one day. That was it. So <laughs> as far as Zoe Bell goes, I guess she was Miss Thermos's stunt double in Kill Bill. And Tarantino actually wrote that role for her, you know, as a leading lady. I love Zoe Bell. She has so much positive energy. She's so much fun on screen. So this was actually her first on-screen acting role, and Mm -hmm. she thought she was showing up as merely a cameo and didn't realize that she was getting a leading role in the movie. And so he actually based a lot of stuff that has to do with her character off of things that she told him while she was working with him previously. So a lot of her character is actually her. I mean, I know she's, you know, plays herself in the movie, but she's playing herself even more because, you know, he wrote the role as part of stuff that she told him. I would have to imagine without doing any real research on this, that Zoe Bell being a stunt woman who's been in a, a ton of films, she probably has a pretty good understanding of exploitation cinema as far as like, you know, the kind of stunts that they used to do in those, in those in that era, you know, kind of bringing that into a modern age. Right. So you talked about, 
the version that you have, the the copy that you mm-hmm. have of it is different. Well, that one is actually 127 minutes long as opposed to 113 minutes that came out in cinemas because it right. had to be trimmed down so much, like you said. So Tarantino said there's a half an hour's difference between his death proof and what is playing with Grindhouse. It was like a brutish American exploitation distributor who cut the movie down almost to the point of incoherence. I cut it down to the bone and took all the fat off to see what could still exist. And it worked. So exactly. And that, and if you go back and watch those exploitation films from the seventies and eighties, that's exactly what they are. They are very bare bones. They are okay. This is a slasher flick. Let's minimize the talking. Who cares who's dating who and who's sleeping with who let's get to the stabbing. And that's pretty much what death proof, the theatrical cut is it's all right. Stuntman Mike is being creepy. Let's get him to run somebody over. And then the full length release is much more like a Tarantino film with a lot of dialogue, a lot of character building. And, you know, if you like that, it, it, it's better. I personally think that the, the full length version is a lot better. It makes you kind of, uh, kind of give a shit when these yeah. characters get into trouble. Um, well, it gives you more but, time to care about them and build the character a little bit more. So. But again, that's not an exploitation film. No. An exploitation film is let's get eight girls in here that are pretty and let's stab them to death. So right. that's, that's you know, in, in that sense, it works for the theatrical version. So we're going to kind of skirt past and end our death proof. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Monster. We're going to move past it. But there's hope because there has been talk about Grindhouse 2. So both Tarantino and Rodriguez have expressed interest in making a sequel to Grindhouse. Tarantino said that he wants to shoot an old school kung fu movie in Mandarin with subtitles in some countries and release a shooter dubbed in others. You know, we'll, we'll see. I'm not really sure about that. It's also been reported that Edgar Wright may expand don't into a feature film as we saw with several other of the trailers they've, you know, so. Okay. Yeah. So just, just to elaborate on that real quick, uh, the, uh, when they released Grindhouse, they released a couple of fake trailers. Yeah. Machete with uh, Danny Trejo was the first one that they showed before planet terror and Robert Rodriguez eventually made that into a film and it did get a sequel. And both of those are a lot of fun. They're definitely Grindhouse yeah. grimy silly movies but they're fun but then eli roth did one called thanksgiving which was kind of like a slasher flick edgar wright did one called don't which kind of has a kind of a italian ghost film vibe and then rob zombie did one called uh oh god werewolf women of the ss or something Something like that that. it was it was a combination of werewolves and nazis and uh he played on that a little bit in El Superbisto. Uh, if you want to know more about that, listen to last season's episode, Z for Zombie. So they've often talked about expanding those more. Right. I would be interested to see if Edgar Wright actually does do something with Don't. And, and like I said a few minutes ago, I think that the climate is better now for that double feature grindhouse vibe. So, hey, Maybe if they want to revisit it, maybe now is the time to do it. Maybe it would work better than it did in 2007. I don't know. So another one of the trailers that actually got a flesh-out movie was Hobo with a Shotgun. 
which the 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 movie wasn't very good. I didn't like it, but it it was another one of those. That's that's not in in Grindhouse. That wasn't shown at Grindhouse. According to everything that I have seen, it was actually in the theatrical pr- uh, release, but not on the home release. I was at the theater when it came out, and they did not show that. I'm just telling you what I uh, what I have okay. found. So anyway, um, it has also been reported that Edgar Wright makes Don't, but according to Eli Roth, he and Wright have discussed the possibility of pairing Don't with Thanksgiving for a Grindhouse sequel. Roth is quoting as saying, we are talking to Dimension about it. I think they're still trying to figure out Grindhouse 1 before they dive into Grindhouse 2. But I've already right. been working on an outline for it and would let, do it in a heartbeat. So if it gets funding, it'll, you know, it'll happen. I think, you know, if it's not Tarantino and Robert, we're going to go first name on that one. So Tarantino and Robert. Of course. You know, they'll probably have something to do with it as far as production credit or something like that. So that's it for Grindhouse and Death Proof. But what popped up right after Death Proof for Mr. Quentin Tarantino was that Warner Brothers hired Tarantino to direct a remake of the 1973 Westworld. You know, the HBO show, but it was a a movie before in the 70s. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was involved in the project as the lead, the lone gunslinger. But then Tarantino was fired due to creative differences with Warner Brothers. Specifically, the fact that he wanted it to have a dark tone and was unsatisfied with Schwarzenegger. (laughs) The project was scrapped. It's funny to see the amount of things that Tarantino has either had his name attached to, or at the very least has mentioned that he wanted to work on. He has said on a couple occasions that he would like to do a straightforward horror film. He's also mentioned that he'd like to do a Star Trek film. So who knows? He also had a full script for um, Silver Surfer at one point. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. He's actually had quite a bit of, of different scripts and things fleshed out completely. And just, they've been turned down by studios. So gotcha. Like Quentin has been turned down. I'm going to turn down. Q is for Quentin part two. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah uh that's that's my ending segue it, it sounded good i like it All right. anything for the people monster just uh just uh keep on doing what you're doing enjoy life cool it's crazy times do the best you can and uh if you haven't watched death proof go watch it if you haven't watched grindhouse the whole thing Go watch it. Do yeah, and, and it's I think it's hard to find the whole thing like all together anymore. I know you yeah. can buy the movies together. I know you can buy the, the set. It, it, I think and I the own them both do. separately. Yeah. yeah, and so do yourself a favor. Just get your friends over and have a double feature. Yep. It'll be fun. It'll be a good time. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Later.